The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the part one of the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our guest this time around is Paul Mitchell, uh, who needs no introduction, but we will anyway. He's a redistricting expert, and redistricting is now on the top of everybody's mind. New maps, proposed maps are coming out. Paul, thank you very much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. I saw, I wanted to ask about a couple, I'm just quoting a story I read. I think it was Capital Public Radio did a story, and you were quoted in there uh, in reference to one district, potential district, moving Davis up into uh, into LaMalfa's congressional district. And your quote was something like, hey, this is wackiness up in Northern California. So that's my first question. What's going on in Northern California as proposed? Well, that could have been your, you know, loser of the week would have been Davis if that map had stood. The map's changed significantly now. But um, at one point, uh, they had this map that went all the way from Clarksburg up to Oregon and LaMalfa would be the member of Congress for the Socialist Republic of Davis. I don't think that ultimately is going to happen. I think that the map for the congressional districts in Northern California still have some more shifting to do before they become finalized. But um, that was one of those funny ones. Like uh, the Davis haters would have enjoyed uh, that future for the for Davis for the next 10 years. What didn't they like about the map? I mean, uh, is it the fact that Davisites with their lattes would be uh, cheek by jowl with the ranchers up in uh, Oroville? Yeah, exactly. So the the issue that the commission had, and it's still kind of in play here, is that um, they know that the uh, that the Lamalfa district has not grown as fast as the rest of the state, and so it has to expand. Okay. And if it's going to expand, where can it expand? It can't go to Nevada. It can't go to Oregon. It really can't go over the coastal range to like the Humboldt coast because there's a real community of interest there. And in the winter time, you can't even get over there because of the snow. So uh, it basically has to come down. And when it comes down, Sacramento sitting there is kind of a rock in the middle of it because, you know, it's Sacramento should be two congressional districts, really, like the city of Sacramento and then like the non unincorporated and Elk Grove and kind of Folsom area and all that kind of part of Sacramento. And so they have this kind of locked in area in Sacramento that's hard to go to. So they can come down one or two sides of Sacramento. They can come down YOLO and take in like there is some agricultural stuff in YOLO and Clarksburg and all that. They could take that way. Or they could go down the east side around like Nevada County and everything where um, I would argue that's probably a better community of interest with the state of Jefferson folks is that forest agricultural side, you know, on that side of Sacramento, then coming down on the west side of Sacramento, kind of the I-80 corridor. Um, so things have changed and they will change again by this weekend um, because they're going through this visualization process of just like, in some cases, real structured districts that are like really being defined by Voting Rights Act and maybe more fixed. In other cases, some of these things, at least initially, were just kind of like spitballing, like what happens if we put this city and this city together? And how about that city and this city, you know? I saw December 17th was listed as a deadline. Is that for the visualizations to be completed? Or is that, some, is that a hard deadline or is that a 
interim sort of a thing? So the the deadlines that your listeners should be thinking about right now is that uh, on by November 10th, I think really it has to be by the 15th, probably by at least by the 12th, but they're saying by the 10th, there will be a first draft. That first draft is really kind of the first real balanced working piece for the Assembly, Senate, Congressional Districts, and even the Board of Equalization, although nobody I don't think really focuses on that unless you're on the Board of Equalization. Um, and then uh, then they're going to have that public for 14 days before they actually make any changes to those maps. In that period, they'll take public comment, maybe do more visualizations of what changes could happen. Um, but then all this is leading towards end of December, um, them getting finalized. They have to have the maps done by December 27th, which really means that they have to have them done by December 24th. So Christmas Eve, uh, I presume they're going to try to get them done by, you know, a few days before that. So that they're not, um, you know, spending Christmas Eve trying to get votes together on a statewide congressional plan or something. Um, but yeah, the timeline, it's coming quick. Uh, we, uh, had a slow, slow, slow start to this because of the late census data. And now I think it's going to get into that era where like people's heads are going to be spinning on, you know, they're going to sit around Thanksgiving dinner and realize that they lost their assembly district. Well, we got going into this, we had uh, 53 congressional districts. We know we're going to have 52 now. So whoever was left in these districts, we're going to compress somebody somewhere somehow into 52 instead of 53 seats. Are you getting any signals? you get any indication where that, where that might happen most, uh, who'd be most impacted? Well, when the first visualizations came out of a statewide visualization, um, uh, the commission just up and eliminated the Karen Bass district. Um, they eliminated a black district from the middle of LA. Um, I have been trying to control myself uh, but on that day, I didn't control myself. And I just went on a Twitter screed, like, how can you, uh, in a state that is losing a congressional district, let's be clear, the state is losing a congressional district because our state lost 5% of its white population. And so you're going to remedy that by eliminating one of the two black districts in LA, just mind blowing. Um, LA critical race theory here, Paul, they're getting, Oh yeah. I'm not going to get a CRT. We can debate that stuff later, but just the LA region has not grown as fast as the rest of the state. It's grown at 2% rate where the state has grown at six. And so all the districts in LA do need to expand and spread out a little bit, maybe go more into orange County, maybe go more into Santa Clarita. There's going to be like this pushing out from the LA basin. So we know that, but MALDEF, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, uh, other groups, even Equality California and CLCV and these other groups have put out maps that show, look, you can still create all of these Voting Rights Act protected districts in LA. And I think the commission is going to be very focused on making sure that they don't end the, end the redistricting cycle with some front page article in the LA Times saying commission eliminates Latino or black district in LA. I don't think that that is essentially what they'll do. I think what will happen is that on the outskirts of L.A. and the outskirts of L.A. County, somewhere out there, there will be a squeeze. And it's not going to be as simple as like the commission just saying one day, oh, Congressman so-and-so, you don't have a district. It'll probably be, you know, a couple hundred thousand push up north, a couple hundred thousand push down the coast, a couple hundred thousand push 
you know, over into, uh, you know, kind of through Riverside and, and uh, you know, that accumulation of this shifting will end up making space for one less member of Congress, but it might not be that we really identify who that person is until after we see who files and who's running and, and everything. And also just to be clear, we could have multiple cases of this Um, just because uh, we're losing one member of Congress doesn't mean that the, what if the commission creates a new district in Riverside Mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden there's a new district out in Riverside. So that means there's also somewhere else in the state where there's missing a district. So uh, it might be that we might see some things that people aren't prepared for. um, And uh, you know, we're keenly watching it. Do the, do the local, redistricting officials like the LA commission in LA, do they take any kind of guidance from the state citizens redistricting commission or do they do them? Is it really independent on their own? Yeah. So local redistricting in California has been shaped by the real positive experience that we had in uh, 2011 with the state redistricting commission. A lot of the elements of uh, the state, redistricting process were moved down to local governments through a bill done by Rob Bonta uh, a few years ago, the Fair Maps Act. Now that means that in localities, they have to have a set number of hearings. They have to have at least one or up to two hearings before they even start drafting maps. Maps need to be public for a week before they get adopted. They need to have, they have requirements about what has to be on their website, all the maps, all the hearings, all the engagement. They are legally required to try to reach out to local community-based organizations and reach out to the media to let them know what's happening with the redistricting process. They're trying to, through this Fair Maps Act, replicate some of the state process in terms of openness, transparency, and a, a process that the public can actually plug into. And that is transforming our local redistricting. Um, we'll see some agencies that go whole hog. And they Long Beach is an example where we just uh, are finishing up the redistricting Uh, dozens of meetings, public engagement, hundreds of speakers, hundreds of people giving input or drawing maps, a public mapping software, you know, hosted by the city, like all this stuff that's happening there. And that's that's happening in many jurisdictions. There are some jurisdictions that are still clinging to the old, Um, you know, uh, I think one example was a county where uh, they had a process where every chief of staff for each of the city county supervisors uh, submitted a plan. And they, of those five plans, they eliminated the one plan of the one Latino supervisor and then kind of tried to ramrod through an incumbent protection redistricting. Um, I think that they're going to have to get turned around. Um, But we're seeing that in some cases, cities and counties still trying to play hide the ball, still trying to do really bad redistrictings, but the law from 2011, the statewide commission has trickled down to cities and counties. We're even seeing water districts that are doing commissions and school boards and community colleges that are doing open, transparent process. And, and the, the culture of open, transparent redistricting has been spread throughout the state. And I think that it can only make the process better. Um, and I'm really proud that we have been able to be a part of it. We're working with 80 plus agencies in the state that are doing redistricting. And in every one of those, uh, it is not me smoking cigars in back rooms, drawing lines. I, I couldn't smoke that many cigars, uh, but uh, 
Um, it's in every one of our redistrictings, you know, following a process of making sure that it's front facing, that the community can be engaged and that lines are being drawn around residents, not being drawn around, you know, political outcomes for the incumbents as an example. Great. Uh, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. Tim, do you have anything you wanted to add? No, I think we are ready to move on to our next half of the uh, today's podcast. We'll get Paul back after we, some of the deadlines pass and he can explain what all this means, hopefully. Is that okay? I'd love to do it. And I can't wait to listen to your other guest. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Paul. And so now we're at the part two of the Capital Weekly Podcast. We'll talk to Bruce and Lane Campbell of GovBuddy and Capital Inquiry. And thank you both very much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the history of this, it's, it's so ubiquitous in the Capitol. I mean, at one point, everybody carried the little red book, the Capital Inquiry red book. Um, Ruth Pritchard started Capital Inquiry in 1973. Well, what prompted her to do that? Why did, why did it seem like an information booklet for the Capitol would be a good thing? She was uh, working for the School Boards Association and Public Relations at the time. And uh, she, she started keeping information about the legislators for herself because she needed to, to deal with them so frequently. And she really needed to know uh, where their offices were, how to contact them, who was on their staff, uh, some background information on their biographies. And she started to uh, put all this together for herself. But she had a, uh, 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 a wide network of friends who were in uh, and similar kinds of jobs across Sacramento. And they started asking her if they could get her notes. And uh, at, at first, she, she, um, she made copies and handed them out. And then more and more people were asking her for her notes until she was, uh, she, she was uh, making dozens, I think it even got to hundreds of copies on the Xerox machine. And she decided she better start charging people for all the time it was taking her to make Xerox copies. And, uh, and then as more and more people started that. Was it at all hard yeah. to pry information out of the legislature? They, I know they're very talkative bunch over there, but some things they don't like banding around. Did, did, was it work to get it out of them? I, I, I believe it was. I haven't, uh, I don't remember having that discussion with her. Uh, obviously it took a, a fair amount of time and, uh, it was a whole. It was information that was uh, hard enough to get and valuable enough to get that uh, everybody seemed to want it. So uh, that's that's how the business got started, and uh, it wasn't a business she intended to get into. It's just one that uh, she fell into, and it uh, it turned out there was a lot of demand for it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, over time. Uh, uh, the, the the demand for the pocket directory continued to grow, and uh, she thought, gee, maybe uh, maybe the same people would like other kinds of uh, government information. So uh, she expanded. She she started doing a state agency directory. Uh, uh, later on, a, a city county directory, a staff directory. Uh, and she sells a, a U.S. Congress directory. She sold a U.S. Congress directory. So the uh, the the business continued to grow, and it turned into a real business for her, and uh, uh, all by happenstance. So now, at some point, you were in a competition with StateNet, which is a local business 
Uh, they're headquartered over at 21st and K. I think they're owned by LexisNexis now, but back then they were run by uh, Judd Clark. And I think maybe Tom Hober, who was one of the guys who started the, the uh, California Journal. Yeah. Yeah. She was uh, uh, actually pretty good friends with Tom and was, uh, was uh, surprised and uh, disappointed when uh, they decided to go into a competition with her. Uh, and they were for several years and, uh, we thought they produced a pretty good product, but, uh, but, uh, my mom's product was better and, uh, they never, they never managed to get much of a foothold, never got, uh, much in the way of sales and, uh, eventually decided to give up on it. I didn't realize well, I you guys think- had done so many, <clears throat> excuse me. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember the small booklet that you could put in your pocket. Yes. And yeah, I guess it's still around, book, but, um, but you did all oh, kinds no, of other not things. around anymore. Yeah. Um, oh, ours is around, but the state net product is long gone. Uh-huh. Well, you mentioned other directly. Uh, well, I know there's one for Congress. There's one for the state yes. bureaucracy. You've got the legislative yes. staff. Uh, you got yep. really expanded. When did you go digital? So, so, you know, the Internet certainly came along. This is Lane and uh, and it changed things. Uh, back in 1996, uh, my cousin Gabe Anderson was working for the business. Um, I, I, my father's sister's son, uh, Ruth's daughter's son, and uh, Gabe is uh, an amazingly bright guy. He uh, grew up in Sacramento and uh, had exposure to uh, uh, the the internet revolution as it was happening. He spent some time down in Silicon Valley as well, um, San Francisco area. He uh, he got first domain and first website set up in 1996 so we've been online since then um as a company and about 10 years later a little more than 10 years later we introduced an online subscription version of our most popular products combined into what is now govbuddy.com um govbuddy is a online professional legislative directory so it's a a way to uh, keep in, keep track of all the changes that are going on in the state les- legislature today uh, features an activity feed with uh, notifications that uh, allow you to stay up to date with changes of uh, different staff inside of the legislature. How, how does that work? Do you get the updates from the staffs? Uh, I've noticed that the, you, you're able to do that and keep it up to date, but I'm wondering... Does that come from the staffs? Is there an is there an automatic feed or something you're plugged into that when there's a change of office, change of staff, change of phone number or whatever, yeah, we, automatically flows to you? We have a a hundred percent local team that keeps that information up to date, and then uh, we have uh, feedback loops from people who work with the government, work within the government. That, that allow us to keep it all up to date. And it's uh, quite an effort, as you can imagine. Uh, there's a lot that goes into maintaining uh, this data as accurately as possible. And uh, we certainly strive to keep it as up to date as possible. So, yeah, one of the benefits of being around for 50 years is that uh, everybody knows us and the, uh, the, yeah. this, the staff and these uh, legislative offices are, they're really pretty open with uh, giving us information. Uh, I think uh, we can get it more easily than other people. 
but we do put a lot of work into it to keep it up to date, and we we think we keep it very up to date. So now, now, Lane, when I talked to you a few months ago, you told me a pretty funny story. You had changed the manner in which people subscribed to GovBuddy. I mean, I think people were supposed to let you know how many people were using the system, uh, but apparently they inadvertently did not. And so you changed the system so that it was now tracking for each user. And suddenly people that had signed up just for one were actually using sometimes dozens, dozens of accounts. And, and can you talk about what happened? So when was that and exactly what happened? Sure. So this is actually April of last year. And it's a, it's a little funny on the inadvertent part because we, we were building some new functionality into GovBuddy for collaboration. And this is the first time that GovBuddy now stores data from our users. So we were overhauling uh, security and, and ensuring that individual accounts were who they said they were, because this is something we never really had to worry about in the past, because GovBuddy just was uh, literally a directory. You could sign in and, and look at information, but you couldn't store anything. Uh, so when we added this new functionality, we added uh, much, much, much more sophisticated security. We uh, added it both on the consumer side and uh, on our team side. It limits how much uh, our team can do to like reset a password or change an email address. So uh, from, from the, the, the customer standpoint, they now have to put in a phone number to sign in and get a code uh, on that phone number. It has to be a mobile phone. Um, and suddenly people were uh, asking, you know, hey, we have a team of people that are using this account, not a single person. Now, somebody's always been licensed per user and we, uh, you know, we're never uh, very serious about policing it or anything because you know, there are a lot of customers we're transitioning from the books to the website, but uh, it quickly became apparent that uh, a lot of people were, were sort of uh, taking that, uh, that policy and just sort of using it as a group. And so uh, once the new account security had gone into place and we were storing this uh, sensitive data, potentially sensitive data, we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, we, that was protected. And when we did, uh, then suddenly there was a lot of demand for, uh, changes to, to uh, facilitate allowing groups to be able to share an account. And we had to remind folks that it actually was never licensed that way. You need a group plan. Uh, and, and the group plans are, are very affordable. Yeah, a book is, is about uh, $20 shipped, a little more than. And, and a, on a, a team plan for GovBuddy, if you're using all the different folks, it's only about $30 a year. So it, it really isn't a very rough transition from the pricing of the book, we, we feel. And uh, I think our customers have seen that and have been adopting it because of that. How about, um, how about getting information out of Congress? You've got a whole section on in the House of Representatives. You've got staff members, got phone numbers, uh, just like you do for the state legislature. Was coordinating with the feds any harder or easier than coordinating with our legislature here? Yeah, I think... Uh, you know, we, we focus on the California uh, representatives at the federal level, and uh, there's certainly a lot of information to keep track of there. there some of them have very large staffs, and uh, it certainly is a lot of work to keep that up to date. And for Congress, we are unable to get the email that you in Congress. They guard those things um, more, more closely than any other data they have. I think nobody has that information. Uh, they want people to go into their websites we spend a whole lot more time on the uh, California delegation 
and uh, and um, have more extensive staff, which we list in our uh, pocket directory in the California legislature. And you guys also sell um, mailing lists, don't you, or databases that others can use uh, for their own, you know, for their own purposes. Like we do mailings from time to time. I think we've used them before. It's that. You know, is that a popular item or is that pretty esoteric for political junkies like us? It, it's definitely uh, demanded by a good percentage of customers that we have. And we do we do them as snapshots. Um, so it's it's sort of a frozen in time thing. Um, so created um, once or twice a year, depending on the year. Uh, and, and we do provide it in like an Excel format so that, uh, you know, mailings are possible. Well, one last question. Uh, can I still get the little red book? Are the little red book still oh, out yeah. there? Oh, yeah. We still I mean, everything's uh, digital uh, now, so, but a lot of, that little red book. Nah, a lot of people, a lot of people really like to have a paper book in their hands. A lot of people still buy just the red book and not go buddy. And some people buy both. A lot of people actually buy both, which is uh, interesting. Great. Well, Bruce and Lane Campbell, thank you so much uh, for walking down history's lane a little bit here on Capital Inquiry and Bug Buddy. Tim, thank you so much Bye. for having Hey, thanks, guys. Both so much for the chat today. We want to, Tim Foster and I want to move on to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And uh, there are usually a lot of choices here. One of them stood out. The mayor, current mayor, incumbent mayor of Santa Barbara is Kathy Murillo. In a six-person race, incumbent mayor Kathy Murillo is in third place. The two front runners, very, very close together, Randy Rouse, uh, owner of the Paradise Cafe, and James Joyce III, both of whom had about 25% of the vote, close to that, 24.4 to 25.9. No, uh, no, actually, Rouse is ahead. Rouse had 40% of the vote uh, or so. And, 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 oh, I'm sorry. He had 40.4% of the vote. Yeah, and Murillo and... percent uh, okay. Yeah, Murillo so, and... Uh, and James Joyce has been trailing. She's a 24.4. Yeah. So she's way, uh, she's back there. Um, not a good week for this. Not a good week for Kathy Murillo and for an incumbent mayor. Definitely, definitely not a good week. Uh, these figures have to be updated. But right now, I think Kathy takes the cake for our person of the worst week this week. And, and credit where uh, credit goes, this, uh, we're getting this information from Newshawk, spelled yes. N-O-O-Z, Hawk, uh, which is down in, in Santa Barbara. But you know, the reality is, so she may lose her seat, but she still lives in Santa Barbara. John, have you ever been to Santa Barbara? It's like, it's heaven on earth almost. I mean, okay. the Grove is probably heaven on earth, but Santa Barbara is damn close. Yeah. Uh, so that wraps it up. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. This is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.